Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is supply chain in VUCA environments with my friend Jim Tompkins. How's it going there, Jim? I'm doing great, Joe. I hope you are. I am. I am. This is a great opportunity for me. I'm learning at the hands of a master today. So, Jim, before we get started, please introduce yourself and your company. So, I am Jim Tompkins, the uh, founder and chairman of Tompkins International a company I started in 1975. The company has grown and evolved and had a great success. It's been an unbelievable ride. We have two primary groups. One is a combination of consulting and material handling and integration, and the other is in the robotics space. And so we work with clients in retail, consumer products, pharmaceutical, across the industry. E-commerce has been a big boom for us. So The good news is e-commerce is growing. The bad news is the pandemic caused that. So it's kind of a good news, bad news story. But things are exciting. And I can't think of a better thing to be doing in 2021 than working in the supply chain. Yeah, that's for sure. It has been a wild ride. And hopefully at the tail end of this pandemic, where we have just seen just so much turmoil. I mean, whatever the people part, the process part, the product part, everything's changed. Systems, everything's just different now. So, which is why this is a perfect topic for us today. Before we get into that topic, Jim, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you started Tompkins. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, actually a suburb of Chicago, Elmwood Park, which is about a half a mile from Chicago. Had a very traditional lower middle class upraising. No one in my family had ever gone to college, and so fought my way into Purdue and got my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, and my PhD all from Purdue. Damn, you made up for lost time for the family there. (laughs) Yeah, and it was a wild ride because the Chicago Draft Board thought that I would make a great soldier, so they were drafting me quite regularly. When I was two months shy of completing my PhD, The uh, Army sent me a draft notice and said, you will come now. And I called them up. I said, I need two months. And so I enlisted for uh, three years, and they gave me three months delayed entry. And so three months later, went in the Army as Dr. Private Tompkins. Uh, That was my Army career. I uh, ended that career and went to NC State as a professor. And then I started the company Tompkins International in 1975 and then um, have worked there ever since. So you had a little bit of, obviously you went to school for a long time. So you saw that environment and then you went to the military. I'm sure you said, this is great. I love it here. But, (laughs) and then you went back to academia and did you think that was going to be your path? The uh, academia thing is what I wanted to do. That's why I got the PhD. My PhD was focused on what we back then called distribution and logistics. We didn't have the term supply chain yet. And so I went to academia and thought that's what I wanted to do, but I wanted to have some industrial involvement. And so I uh, started teaching some short courses and I taught a course that was related to what I learned at Purdue as an industrial engineer and what I learned in the Army running warehouses for the Army. I taught a course called Planning and Improving Warehouse Operations. Well, that was the first time in the world that people had applied science to warehousing. And so that course was extremely popular. 
I taught that course a bunch. People called me up and said, gee, Jim, can can you do that or just run your mouth? I said, well, I'm not sure. And they said, well, come and help. And so I started doing warehousing work and, and then transportation and then inventory and then network planning. And then we added the technology piece and material handling integration. And next thing you know, it's uh, 2021. So do you consider yourself kind of the accidental entrepreneur or did you really make a decision one day that this is really what I want to do? It was absolutely accidental. In fact, I started teaching at NC State in 1975. I started the consulting business in 1975. In 1978, my wife made the observation that my income from Tompkins International was four times larger than my full-time job at the university. So then based on her input, I made the decision to leave the university, and I was then an entrepreneur. More important, though, than starting a business as an entrepreneur, I think like an entrepreneur. I'm always thinking, what is new? What is different? How can I help? Where is the market? What are the the holes in the market? And that's where I uh, really flourished and, and continue to do that to this day. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that there was no supply chain word back in the day. And I remember, I've told this story a few times on my podcast, but I'm thinking 20, 20 some years ago, maybe 25, I don't remember. I got a call from some executive search guy and he said, you're perfect for this job, blah, blah, blah. And he kept saying, with your supply chain background, I was an engineer and program manager within automotive. And I kept thinking, what does he keep saying? Supply chain. And so he said supply chain many times throughout. And then he say, and I forget what it was, some sort of supply chain manager. And I remember I hung up and immediately called my another friend who was an executive recruiter. I said, what the hell is a supply chain? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? And I go, there's nobody here. I was working at, with Chrysler, not at Chrysler. Nobody there had the title supply chain. We had suppliers. <laughs> we had all those people we worked with. We had logistics. We had transportation. We had all this stuff we have today. Just nobody called supply. I guess they'd be purchasing or procurement, I guess, is the closest. But Well, I had a, an experience with that. My wife and I have been married 52 years. and. She came and saw me in my office. She came into my office and sat down, which she doesn't typically do. And so she came in and sat down and thought, oh boy, what did I do now? And she said, congratulations. And I said, well, thank you. What did I do? And she said, you are now legitimate. I said, well, okay. I didn't know I was illegitimate. Mom and dad never told me. What, what are you talking about? She said, for 52 years, I've explained to my friends, to your friends, to our friends, to our kids, to our grandkids, what is it that Papa does? What, what, what does he do? And I kept telling him supply chain, supply chain, and no one understood me. She said, but for the last four nights on the evening news, they're talking supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. So all of a sudden, you are now legitimate. So, Joe, I should congratulate you. You are now legitimate as well. Congratulations. Right. I, I know what you mean. It's funny because I remember a buddy of mine, he's a, he used to work on the Chicago Board of Options. Now he's he switched gears now. He's a teacher. And I remember one time we were all talking about work and then he looked at me and he goes, I don't even want to know what you're doing these days. Because every time we talk about an engineering design or a manufacturing problem or whatever, it was just like, okay, I don't care. Not Who cares? But supply chains are in the news these days. So, which brings us to our topic today. So, we talked about all the problems of this last year, all the, all the horrible things that COVID has brought. Again, just enormous disruption. And that is VUCA. So, Jim, tell us, tell us what is VUCA. Give us, give us that explanation. So, I actually began this discovery 
in 2007 when a book Black Swan was written. And what a black swan is, it's when something is as highly unpredictable, it has a big impact. And after the fact, we kind of create a rationalization as to why it happened. And so COVID is the mother of all black swans. But in 2018, I noticed the rate at which black swans were occurring increased substantially. And so in June of 2019, I did a videotape on something called anti-brittle, how to live and flourish in uncertain times. And in that video, I was doing research for the video, and I went back and I looked at times of major uncertainty of the past, and I found that in 1988, the U.S. Army War College invented the term VUCA. VUCA stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. Now, why did the U.S. Army College do this? Well, they thought that what was going to happen sometime in the next couple years after 1987, 1988, is that what was going to happen is the Berlin Wall was going to fall, that the Soviet Union was going to fall, and that the Cold War would be over. And so the way business operated, the way governments operated would be totally different. And they needed to have a training device to teach people how to deal with volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So that's where the term came from. Now, the interesting thing, Joe, after that video, I then did some speeches on VUCA. And by the end of 2019, I was getting quite a bit of correspondence on VUCA. Then in March or late February 2020, COVID hit. And we all define COVID as the mother of all VUCA. And I had people writing me saying, Jim, you predicted COVID. Now, I didn't know the word COVID. I didn't know the word pandemic. I didn't know coronavirus. I knew none of that. And I was as shocked by what occurred as anyone else. But COVID is the black swan of all times. And the implications of it are properly grasped with the understanding of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, VUCA. Right. When we were prepping for this, I mentioned to you that I listened to Brent Gleason's book. He's a Navy SEAL. He wrote two books. He's supposed to be on my podcast. Hopefully, he'll keep, his schedule will allow that. But when I was listening to one of his books, he says VUCA environment. So he's a Navy SEAL talking about being in the Middle East in a, a VUCA environment, which he's described just as you said, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And he's trying to act. And you you got to think these guys have their finger on the trigger. These are real big decisions they are making. And when we watch all the war movies, it always seems as if the good guys are on one end, the bad guys on the other, and you just shoot the bad guys. It seems all of a sudden in the Middle East, when you're there, it is just this, this VUCA environment. And so when he said this, I was driving my car listening to this book. As soon as he said it, I pulled over and I thought, he doesn't realize the the business implications of what he said. I wrote it down. I called a friend and he said, VUCA, oh, that's that alcohol drink. I go, no, no, no. That's, I think, VUCA or something. But I don't know. Told my friend, he said, that's fantastic. And then um, it couldn't have been this about a month, month ago. And then when I talked to Jamie, one of your uh, marketing people, she said, Jim would like to talk about VUCA. I was like, yes, I know exactly. I'm very excited that you're here to talk about it. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to give you guys just when we say VUCA, it always sounds as if those are all kind of the same thing. These 
volatility is different than uncertainty, different than complexity and ambiguity. And I've got just a quick definition. I'll hit these real quick. Volatility is just changes occur much more often and before and require continuous analysis and evaluation. So that's the volatility. We live that in logistics. I mean, that's, that is the definition of trucking right now. Uncertainty. We're not able to unambiguously predict and prioritize factors. That's what we're always trying to do in supply chain, trying to predict things. So those factors that influence the situation. And then complexity, the number of factors that determine the development process significantly or become unknown. And this is, you know, the guy in the, the book, Brent Gleason, kind of mentioned all the interconnected. So when you say we're going to attack that hill only to find out that those guys are <laughs> allies with your allies, right? And then ambiguity, information is difficult to interpret unequivocally past experience is not applicable to explain new process and that that's always supply chain <laughs> that never changes but anyway enough of my blather so when we hit one of these VUCA environments this black swan that you talked about we realize just how brittle some of our supply chains are so what happens to supply chains in a VUCA environment well the thing that sometimes people start relating VUCA directly to COVID, and certainly that's relevant. But if I just look at what happened in 2020 that I considered black swans the biggies, uh, hurricanes, wildfires, social upheaval, bankruptcies, geopolitical and financial crises, swarming locusts. I mean, my goodness, 2020 was unbelievable year for, and then exploding ports the Beirut port explosion. And so it's not just one event that causes VUCA. It's a combination of events. I mean, if you look at 2021, VUCA has gone to a whole new level. And in fact, the biggest VUCA of 2021, not the event, but what's the impact? We have uncertainty about uncertainty. Uncertain about what level of uncertainty and when it's going to go away, when it's going to stay, and what are the impacts. We have a lot of people talking about getting back to the old normal. There is no old normal. What happened in COVID-19 is we accelerated history. And so I like to talk about 2020, one heck of a decade. The 10 months from March to December were 10 years of accelerated history. And so the implications are just beyond comprehension. COVID-19 and VUCA in 2020, it changed how we work, how we play, how we shop, and how we enjoy life. It, it changed how we learn. It changed the whole learning process. It had a huge impact on what is going on in supply chain. And in fact, no one is immune. And if you look at it, it's a perfect storm because COVID-19 first hit in China, right when the Chinese were off on the Chinese New Year holiday. And so all the factories were closed, but then they put the lockdown and no one could travel back to where they worked. They were all stuck at where they grew up. And so what we found is about a six-week shutdown of the factory of the world. And when that six-week shutdown, that had a huge impact on supply. Just as China started to get the supply open again, the virus was exported around the world and it impacted demand. Okay, and so now we were starting to get our supply back up, but now our demand and we had tremendous uncertainty on demand. And so if you look at what 
is supply chain? Supply chain is the science of synchronizing supply and demand. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And except for supply and demand, we're in pretty good shape. But it just blew up everything we know and everything we have we've done. And so it's had the impacts on supply chain. I mean, it totally redesigned what we do and how we do it. Right. The coming up on my podcast, I'm going to do a podcast on with my friend Mike Temple on remote work. He does a lot of work with freight brokers and 3PLs. And one of the things he said is a lot of these companies are trying to figure out, will people ever come back to the extent to the in-person versus remote? So now all of a sudden we might have to learn to say, how do we manage remote people? How do I have a career from my den, right? Which just seems inconceivable to me. I used to always say, from an automotive guy, I say, you have to go to the beehive every morning. You have to. That's where the innovation happens. That's where the conversations are. That's not the way we work right now. And maybe never again. I have two daughters. Neither one goes to an office on a regular basis. And it's funny trying to explain to my 86-year-old mom that they have unlimited vacation time and they work from home. She's like, I don't understand. How does any of this work? I said, somehow, some way. But another thing, Jim, and I think it's probably related to all this, is back in the day, the government invented something called the law of unintended consequence. And they typically own that. But now we are owning a lot of that. There are so many things that when you say, I'm going to do this, it seems as if downstream, the impacts are so much different than you thought. Yes. Well, the whole concept of VUCA is contrary to kind of the principles of supply chain. Supply chain strives for control, predictability, certainty, being manageable, and being understood. Well, VUCA, you don't have control, you don't have predictability, you don't have certainty, you don't have something that's manageable, and you don't have something that's understandable. So what we see is what we're trying to accomplish is planning and execution in a way that allows us to synchronize supply and demand. And we've lost the ability to do planning execution about supply and demand. So basically, someone says, well, what's left of what was known as supply chain? And the answer is, well, not much. I mean, if you're doing today the same things that you did five years ago, I guarantee you, you're obsolete because the world has changed. It's a new game. It's a whole new game. Right. So you mentioned these brittle supply chains. So th- that implies that as soon as as soon as it's supposed to bend, it breaks. <laughs> I will say, I'm sure there was a lot of behind this. I know there was a lot of behind the scenes, extra effort, heroic efforts by people to keep food hitting the shelves, to keep parts moving to factories. Well, a lot of factories closed, so I guess it didn't matter. But we did see certain supply chains that were more brittle than others. Did you come across any that you said, hey, I'll just mention the toilet paper and the Diet Coke market. I drink a lot of Diet Coke. There was a shortage of Diet Coke, and I hated it. The toilet paper one was just as bad, but it didn't impact me. Well, they keep happening. One now is the little packets of ketchup you can't get. And by the way, it's still hard to find tomato soup. But the result is it's changed the objectives of supply chain. If you look at the objectives of supply chain, from say 1995 to 2005, the objective was efficiency and cost reduction. From 2005 to 2020, we said, no, no, supply chain is more than just cost reduction. It's about adding value and creating customer experience and really adding the efficiency and the effectiveness. So efficiency, 95 to 2005, 2005 to 2020 was effectiveness, EE, but starting in 2020, the letter R. And the letter R stands for resilience, the ability to handle risk. 
And so it's E-E-R. We did E from 95 to 2005. We did the second E from 2005 to 2020. But now we have to do resilience and efficiency and effectiveness. And so if we're just doing EE, we're not going to get EER. And so it's a major problem. Right. It's interesting. I have a daughter who I mentioned often on my podcast that she's she works at one of the vaccine companies. And when she was looking to get PPE, and it's specialized PPE, she gets it from distributors. She never really worried too much about where it came from. But she was kind of aware that most of it came from China. Only after the pandemic hit did she kind of dig a little deeper to find out a lot of the PPE was made in Wuhan. <laughs> And, and she said, and she said, you know, of course, if you're a distributor, you don't want to say where your stuff comes from. You want to take off that manufacturing label. But it was something that you wouldn't have dug that deep because you said it's not a problem. Well, now we have to rethink, should all PPE be made a month away in China? <laughs> and I always say that China isn't 3,000 miles away or five. It's a month away for all intents and purposes. So it starts to make sense. I think from a strategic perspective, it seemed as if the United States government, they're obviously a big, big consumer purchaser procurement people. You would have thought they would be buying PPE from somebody in the United States. I think they're probably going back and saying, geez, let's rethink this. And I guess somebody wanted to save some money back in the day. That was the little, that was the first E, the, the efficiency, take money out, take money out. I spent the latter part of my automotive career in cost reduction, cost reduction, cost reduction. Everything was lean and it felt, you'd hear a lot of engineers and program managers, automotive guys who loved automotive products say, I'm just tired of the cost cutting exercise. And my friends assure me that it's not like that anymore. There's still costs, of course, but it's more about customer delight. Let's make the, a fantastic product. I'm stepping off my soapbox, Jim. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because the, the thought that they should have been looking at this was the thought that occurred in, what was it, 2011 or 2012, when that big tsunami hit that island and there was all the little explosion caps for the airbags in the cars, and it basically shut down the automotive industry. And everyone said, we're going to learn from this, and we're going to build uh, multiple suppliers and resilient supply chains. Well, that lasted for about six months, and then we spun right back the cost reduction and the customer service, and we forgot about resilience. The good news about COVID-19, if there is good news about this terrible virus, is that it really we got resilience now. We really get it, and we got to be resilient, and our supply chains need to be adaptable. We need to have optionality. Okay, so as a PhD industrial engineer, I'm trained on how to optimize a solution. But guess what? Optimization is based upon data. And as that data has VUCA in it, what we find is you no longer can optimize. In fact, what I do is now I don't optimize, I optionize. It's about optionality. And how can a solution have the adaptability that this is a good solution independent of what happens? So to your toilet paper example, once upon a time, there was a group of smart people that were sitting in a room and they said, if we want to build a single ply toilet line, toilet paper line, that single ply toilet paper line is going to cost us 20 million. If we want to build a two ply toilet paper line, it's going to cost us 25 million. If we want to build a line that can do single ply or two ply, what we need to do is spend 30 million. 
And everyone looked at it and said, well, we don't want to spend 30 million because we know the market for the restaurants, the hotels, the offices is single ply. We know what that business is and we know what the two ply is. That's the home. And so we'll just design a single ply and a two ply separate. And then we won't have the ability to have the option of doing either. Well, so then what happened? Does COVID result in people using more toilet paper? No, it just results in where you go to the bathroom. And when you go to the bathroom at home, you use two-ply paper, and that's what was out. If someone in that room had said, let's spend the $30 million and have the option of building single-ply or two-ply, when COVID hit, they just would have hit the two-ply switch, and we wouldn't have had the shortage. And so optionality is one of the lessons that we've learned from COVID that we need to take forward in everything we do. we got to say, given VUCA, we don't really know the future requirements. And so how do we build optionality into this solution to make it work for us? Right. I remember years ago being, I think it was a, a some sort of quality class, but we talked about oak trees versus, I think, bamboo. Do you, you know that story, that analogy? So anyway, they said, you know, an oak tree takes a long time to grow and it grows big and strong. And then I guess bamboo grows very rapidly. But when, when a storm hits, if the storm is a small storm, you'll see the bamboo moves back and forth a lot. The oak tree really, it's hard to move, but once it moves, it doesn't have any real flexibility. It's going down. A bamboo tree, from what I understand, can blow all the way down and all the way up. So if you're talking about designing that, optimizing, you would say, I'm going to optimize for worst case scenario. I'm going to give options. So we're going to be able to work when the storm hits 75 miles an hour. I don't worry about the bamboo tree crushing my house. (laughs) The oak tree is. (laughs) Yeah. But we have to have that ability to sway with the wind because by golly, the wind is blowing today. Yep. Right. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. So part of this could be just understanding if I'm uh, running a supply chain and I say, where are my suppliers? Where's my supply? How's it getting here? All those things. You can kind of go through what, how do you, how would you go right now if you were helping one of your customers say, how do I make this less brittle, more resilient? How do I go about that? What's the first step? Well, let me start half a step in front of that. What they oftentimes are looking at is visibility. They say we need to have the visibility. If we have the visibility, we then have the awareness on how to be more resilient. However, I would disagree with that. And so the first thing I want to do in answer to your question is, do they have a naive perception about visibility? Because visibility, I don't want to just have visibility of what my suppliers are doing. I want to know what my suppliers, 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 suppliers are doing. And so I need to know literally the entire chain. And in fact, I'm really not interested in them having a chain. What I want to do is have a many-to-many network. And so the, the word chain unto itself is broken because a chain talks about a link connecting to a link connecting to a link, and it's linear, and it's point-to-point. I don't want one-to-one connectivity for visibility because to really have the information I need, I need to know what the whole network is doing. And so I want to go from a supply chain to a digital supply network. Now, once I get a digital supply network, I need to be careful because if I have good visibility of my network, that's that's a license to be crazy. Because what you find is with VUCA, 
in that network, you'll have thousands of changes of things that aren't occurring according to plan per hour. Global supply, you'll have thousands. So now you wish this on your enemy. You have 10,000 things you need to handle in the next eight hours. Well, you can't do it. And so visibility, and this is the real answer to your question, visibility without actionability is worthless. You need to have actionability. And so what I want to do is I want to have a software environment where my visibility is fed to an artificial intelligence system. And that artificial intelligence system is saying, okay, this is the problem. The supplier, supplier, supplier did not get the shipment in today as they were supposed to. What are the impacts of that? What's well, going to impact this, this, and this? Then artificial intelligence says, well, how can I solve those three problems? Well, you can do this, this, or this. Oh, well, this first one is best, and it's going to make the supply chain work the most ideal. However, maybe the guidelines aren't well enough, wide enough. We don't have a guideline as to what to handle. That's when machine learning comes in. So machine learning says, okay, for this particular problem, you have these four solutions. Which one would you pick? One, two, three, or four? And I say, I'll go with number two. Then that brings me another problem. It says, Jim, you have one, two, three, or four. What would you do? I, I go with number two. And I do another, a number two. And then machine learning says, you know, Jim, the last five times I've asked you a question about how to handle a situation. If the client was a significant client of yours, as long as we didn't spend more than $2,000 for expedited freight, you always picked the solution that gave them the best customer service. Is that, this is machine learning talking to me, machine learning says, Jim, is that a good rule? And I said, yeah, that's a good rule. And so the next time one of those circumstances comes up, artificial intelligence is going to know that and say, ah, what Jim would do is do this. And so now what we're going to do is to take those 10,000 decisions that we need to make over the next 10 hours. And what we're going to do is reduce that down to six decisions we need to make because the artificial intelligence with the help of machine learning is going to take care of the rest. And so that's a digital supply network that's going to allow them to have the agility to function in a VUCA environment. What you're suggesting is we, we use AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and do s- constant scenario planning. What if, what if, what if? And when it comes back to a, a certain level where you say, this is an unacceptable level of risk, I'm a little more brittle than I thought I was. So when you've talked about this digital supply network, what kind of software are we talking there? I mean, what works in that? Well, it's not enterprise software. Anybody who thinks you can take enterprise software and solve a supply chain problem is an idiot, okay? So your WMS maximizes the function of your warehouse, but is it going to function in a way that's going to allow me to maximize the supply chain? I mean, there's all sorts of conflicts in logistics today. I had a long discussion yesterday with a client, and he wants to eliminate each picking because each picking isn't what he does well. His system and his material handling has been designed around case picking, and now he's being forced to do each picking. So his conclusion is, let's not do each picking. Well, the only problem with that is all e-commerce is each picking, and that's the greatest growth portion of his business. And so we need not to look at what we want, but what's best for the entire network. And so it's not enterprise software, it's the entire network software that's trying to optimize the overall performance. And we need to have the participation of all the suppliers and all the transportation providers along the way so we can have that capability. So there's companies out there that do that very well. The one that 
I like the most is called One Network. And One Network has the ability of creating one network. Interestingly, One Network was created in 2003. You know what else happened in 2003? I wrote the book, No Boundaries. And so what I was talking about in 2003 in my No Boundaries book is what I want is a supply network that has no boundaries in it. It's wide open. Everyone has one single version of the truth. Well, my view of no boundaries is the view that Greg Brady picked up at one network, and he created a network that it was one network. And so what's one network? It's a supply chain without boundaries. And so that's the, the leader in this field today. When I do this podcast, there's always tech people who are on and say, this area, logistics and supply chain, is behind in digital transformation. And I always point out, yeah, of course it is. It was easy. If <laughs> It's easy if I have a factory to install within my four walls. What happens? As soon as I get muddy it up by saying stuff comes in that door and it's unpredictable, and that I have thousands of suppliers who provide stuff to this factory, yeah, it gets real ugly. And then when you say, yeah, and it comes over from China or India or, or Mexico. And so I've always said, this is the last frontier when people complain about how we're behind. It's just, it was the hardest problem. We, we just didn't have solutions. And really, we still don't have all the solutions to connect all the parties. A lot of people in logistics will say, I have visibility. And what they mean is I have visibility from the time it left that factory in North Carolina until I got here in Detroit. It's valuable. But what I'm more interested in is where did everything come from, from the North Carolina? I want to know from the time I ordered that from Jim to the time it got to my factory, that 10 weeks, that's what I want to talk about. Not that two days. Don't give me two, two days visibility. I'll say thank you. 10 weeks visibility, I'm buying your beer. <laughs> yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the key issue there is the length of time. I mean, oftentimes in a traditional supply chain, they go from one end to another end will take 17 weeks. If you analyze that 17 weeks, there's about one week with a work done in those 17 weeks. Everything else is the latency of the systems of me handing it to this guy and this guy handing it to this guy and so forth. So removing the latency, reducing the lead times, getting real lead times, not the ones that are in the system, uh, is really critical to us allowing to have the material to flow through the chain. Right. I had a podcast yesterday with Deborah Dolph, and she was talking about circular networks, circular supply chains. And one of the things she pointed out, she just looked at a case study where pears, they're grown in South America, are shipped to China to be put in little plastic cups that I can put in my lunch to take to work or put in my kids' lunch. And then those packs are shipped to the U.S. so we can eat it. And she said, yet we grow pears here. She said, so you can't convince me that that had to be grown down there. So she said, don't just talk about circular supply. How do we shorten that supply chain? How do I have a supply chain that says, hey, that those pears were grown a hundred miles from Jim's house. There's no reason. <laughs> they have to, there's no reason I have to eat pears from South America that visited China before they got here. They're not fresher. <laughs> That's a critical point, Joe, because we talk about a company's supply chain, but that's really a mistake. It's supply chains. It's plural. Because I have a supply chain for this customer. I have a supply chain for this customer. I have a supply chain for this customer. And those are all different supply chains. 
And so oftentimes the way to begin the journey on anti-brittle is let's look at your big customers. You know, let's look at the people that are really the majority of our sales and let's go and work on their supply chain and then let the others figure out how we can match what's being performed there. So I think when we're talking about a, a supply chain network, we really need to also be talking about supply chain networks because they're all different for different different products, different commodities within our overall enterprise. Yeah, and it's interesting. When I was doing some value stream mapping, I wouldn't have nearly the experience you had doing it. But with doing it in automotive, there would always be these steps where we'd say, yeah, then it goes for heat treating in Nebraska, and then it goes back here. And somebody says, whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. Why is it going to Nebraska? We have heat treating here in Michigan. I guess, I don't know, I guess there were lower costs or whatever. I say, yeah, yeah, perhaps it's cheaper. Even with the trucking, it's cheaper. Yeah, well, a little cheaper. Even with, <laughs> even with the hassle of it being four states away. And so a lot of times just didn't pass the smell test. Didn't when you put it up on the wall, you'd say, does this make sense? And like the, the, the pair scenario I just described, does it even make sense? You mentioned the the little e, the efficiency. We did a lot of, I won't say damage, we did what we did, but we moved stuff all over the world. Some of it made sense to be there, some of it didn't. But now we have capability in some places and not capability in other places. And I think that's some of the problem right now is if somebody would say, yeah, I need to open up a PPE factory here. Does anybody do that? I heard somebody say this. Uh, Somebody said, uh, I want to have all, you know, I think Trump wanted to have all American hats made in America. We don't make caps in America. We also don't make t-shirts in America. It's not that we don't have the capability. We just don't do it anymore. And it starts to make you wonder, should we? Should we just look at it? I mean, The difficulty with that first E, the efficiency, is if you can make a product overseas for a dollar and it costs $5 to make here, the question is, can I handle logistics and the uncertainty and the lead time for $4? That becomes the question. What we, When we look at the end of the chain and what Amazon has done is they have put us in a very awkward position in supply chain because in the real world, a customer has two choices, get the product quickly and pay a lot or get it there inexpensively and be it slow. And so the question, the, the correct question is to ask the customer, do you want it quick and expensive or slow and cheap? Unfortunately, Amazon has taught the customer to answer the question, yes, I want it quick and cheap. And I said, no, 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 that wasn't one of the options. You had quick and expensive or cheap and slow. They said, no, I want it quick and inexpensive. So the only way to do quick and inexpensive is to have the product located close to the customer. I mean, you can't do quick and inexpensive if the product's in Seattle Seattle, and the customer's in Atlanta. You have to get it closer to Atlanta. So it's changing the end of the supply chain. Now, the question is, how much does it change the beginning of the supply chain? If what we are trying to accomplish is bring manufacturing back, we got to realize the term manufacturing back is a little bit stupid because the factory has been turned into a condo and the people that worked in that factory have got other jobs now. And so there is no bringing back. There is the potential to reshore and start anew if you can automate. And so what we need to do is eliminate the labor because the labor is not available. And so if we can automate the manufacturing process, then it makes sense to have it in in this country. And so therein lies the opportunity. Right. I'm 
going to do a, a podcast coming up with Jason Miller from Michigan State. And one of the things we talked about was I did a, a speech at, a, I think it was Apex a few years back, and I talked about the frying pan, 1940, 2040. The way my grandmother bought a frying pan, where it was made, where it was shipped from. They were all made in Wisconsin in 1940 and shipped by train over to the Michigan and some distributor had it. And then they sold it to some department store and my grandma probably walked up and bought it. Well, the way I would buy a frying pan today, by the way, the frying pan hasn't changed in a long time. The coatings have changed. But now frying pans come from China. They get on a boat and they they come to probably the port of L.A. And maybe Amazon picks it up or Costco, wherever I should buy it. And I'm going to get it that way. But what's interesting, and I remember talking to some of the guys from the Home Goods, and they said, yes, there's a trickle of that stuff coming back home because what used to be 100 guys in Wisconsin would be seven or eight guys in an automated factory. And then you start to say, is it worth all the risk and the savings to add China to the mix? And I think if I was to start to talk about environmental impact and the security of having containers on the ocean, yeah, it might start to make sense to say, I'm going to do that here. And uh, again, to your point, it's going to be automated. Every time somebody says something about fulfillment centers or factories, I always say, do you want your kid to work in that fulfillment center or that factory? And for the most part, I don't think we've even fully rethought what it means to work in a fulfillment center. Because give me the choice of fulfillment center or delivering stuff to doorsteps. Hey, sign me up. I'll drive around all day before I sit in a a fulfillment center. So you better make it worth my while. And I think we're going to see a lot of automation in those. That's got to become a high-tech knowledge job that's real efficient and effective, or I'm not going to do it. Well, absolutely. When you think about the difference between case handling and each handling, the each handling, I mean, the each handling used to be done by Mrs. Brown and the, her final mile was the trunk of her Buick. Okay. Well, Mrs. Brown isn't picking. Now we're paying someone to pick it and then we got to get it delivered. So it's a, it's a whole different problem and requires a, a level of automation in that each handling that is not where we've been. And, and that's where robotics coming in in a very big way because that can be done very, very efficiently and effectively and resilient because we have scalability there. So right on, I agree, Joe. Jim, this is a great topic. So again, we're talking about VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, ambiguity, I can't even say it. Uh, how, can I, how can I solve for it if I can't say it? I'll just say VUCA. So Jim, give us your final thoughts on VUCA. Well, it's been one heck of a decade the last year. And what we have to understand is our minds have gone through 12 months, but the requirements of VUCA has gone through 10 years. And so how do we address those things and make that work well? What we've learned is the supply chains that we have done traditionally no longer meet the requirements. And so what we need to do is we need to bring to bear optionality. We have to bring to bear visibility and actionability. And we need to have supply chains that function totally different. And unfortunately, these are often done by the chief supply chain officer, earned his stripes, became the chief supply chain officer because he did these things well. He saved money back in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's when he got promoted. And now he, he now he is one. And he did these things and he became successful. Now, those same things don't work anymore. We used to have planning groups and execution groups. Guess what? With VUCA, there's no longer the phrase planning and execution. 
The phrase has to be planning execution. It's one word. There's no space there. It's plan, execute, plan, execute, plan, execute, plan, execute. And you got to do that in a real time mode. You got to be responsive. So VUCA is a big deal. It changes the game for supply chain. It forces us into a supply chain network. And so we need to change the way we do business. We have to digitize. And so it's getting lots of visibility, supply chain is. And just as it's getting visibility, it needs to be reinvented. So don't think about transforming. We need to think about reinvention because it's a different beast that has different marching orders and we have to respond differently. Right. You know, one thing you said is an excellent takeaway for everybody. You said, when we think about a supply chain, there's all these links that are going together. And you said, forget those links. So rather than one link connecting to my link, I want, I want seven, as many as you can fit. And then I want each one of those just, and I start to look at like a, I've got a weave now <laughs> and that network is significantly stronger and I don't have to worry about the weakest link anymore. And that is really how we've looked at our world. For a long time, where's the weakest link? Even if you were forward thinking, you would say, where's the weakest link? But really, that's assuming I have to have one link there. I'd rather have seven, seven moderately weak or okay than one, than one great one. They could go weak tomorrow. Absolutely. And in fact, I like to talk about supply chain synthesis. And what, someone says, what's synthesis? I said, well, there's a flame of synthesis. And so this flame is very, very hot. And what I have over here is the old supply chain link by link. But when the supply chain, the metal links, I got a blue link, a yellow link, a green link, and a red link. When they get to the flame, the flame melts the chain and it becomes a flow of red, green, blue, and yellow molten metal. And it's flow. And that's what we need to do is we need to have the flow of material from the factory all the way to the consumer as quickly as we can and inexpensively as we can and as resilient as we can. That's what it's a a supply chain that's really going to work going forward. Yeah. And it seems you didn't say this, but I kind of think one of the things that you and your guys do probably really well is bring fresh eyes to things because it feels as if if I have a supply chain that has remnants of the 1995 to 2005 times in it, and then I have the other stuff that's more... I could have the foundation that my supply chain was built on is off. And now I'm going to say to, to get it, if I'm going to get to that flow state, if I'm going to get away from the weakest link mentality, I'm going to have to rethink. I'm going to have to have some fresh eyes. And that, that, maybe that's why people bring in guys like you and your team. Oh, man, I love it. Well, first off, who do you serve and how do we reach out to Tompkins International and also to Jim Tompkins? Well, we serve people that understand the need for the requirements of a digital supply chain. We serve clients who need automation. We serve clients who need robotics. We're excited about the marketplace today. It seems like the marketplace is beating a path to our doorstep and we're very blessed to be there. And so folks can contact me. My email address is jtompkins at tompkinsinc. That's one word, T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S-I-N-C.com. Uh, or they can reach out for me on LinkedIn and happy to 
handle any further questions or discussions. I appreciate your time today, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, thank you so much. Again, this is an education for me. So what I'll do is I'll put in the show notes. I'll put a link to your company, Tompkins International. I'll also put a link to your LinkedIn profile, and I'll throw in your email address. And Jim, thank you so much. This has really been eye-opening. And again, I just think really what you've said kind of struck a chord to me in that I really think we have to go back and really rethink what we've done in the past because you said it, if you created it a few years back, it's obsolete. And and we just started thinking we were getting good at this supply chain stuff before COVID. <laughs> we were all, maybe we got a little cocky. <laughs> well, it's a good thing we're young and we can make that happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I just have this gray hair because it's fashionable these days. <laughs> I just wish I had hair. Come on. Give me a break. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good to see you, Joe. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 